Hi, everybody. Welcome to Walton Biz Talk, where we have casual conversations about professional things. We're a student-run podcast created by the Business Communication Lab in the Sam M. Walton College of Business. I'm Ryan Decker. And I'm Jesse Schneeblen. And this season, we're exploring the topic of health. We're going to explore a lot of different interdisciplinary approaches to the subject of health and really see what it is and why it's an important topic to discuss. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Walton Biz Talk. Today, we're here with Dr. Shi Lee and Dr. Chris Ali to talk about the financial effects and accounting effects of COVID-19. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Absolutely. To get started, can each of you introduce yourself? Just tell us a little bit about yourself, starting with you, Dr. Lee. Okay, sure. Um, I got my finance PhD, taught for a few years, and went to the industry, uh, work on the buy side, some of the largest institutional investors for four years and I. Uh, went to Hong Kong, you know, talked some more, but also did uh, uh, a lot more consulting on the buy side as well. And then I uh, came back to America. Um, now I'm uh, in the finance department doing research and also teach the finance uh, intro 101 class. Okay, perfect. Dr. Ali? Yeah, um, so I am uh, Chris Ali. I am the an associate professor here at the Walton College, the Doyle Z. Williams Chair in Professional Accounting. Um, I did my PhD at Indiana University, and I taught at Michigan State University and the University of Wisconsin for several years. Uh, recently coming, I guess about three and a half years ago, uh, coming here to the University of Arkansas. I have worked in as, as an associate economist for the Federal Reserve Bank of um, St. Louis, as well as Charlotte. And... Um, you know, my expertise is, is in financial accounting. I do a lot of research in disclosures and how companies uh, manage their disclosure policies. And I also teach here at the Walton College. Um, I teach principles of accounting. So the first accounting class, as well as some doctoral seminars. And in the past, I've taught financial statement analysis to MBAs and master's students, as well as financial accounting to MBAs. Awesome. Well, we're also here with, uh, so, Garrett Braun, who is on the supply chain episode as well. He is guest co-hosting with me again today. So uh, if you'll remember, Garrett is a finance and supply chain double major uh, student in the Walton College, like myself. Perfect. So to get started, uh, can we talk a little bit about uh, the effects that COVID-19 has had on uh, the financial markets and the economy in general, and if these effects are uh, primarily because of COVID-19 or if there are other uh, factors or other things underlying these financial changes. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm happy to start a little bit. Um, I think before this uh, COVID-19, the uh, U.S. economy is already having a little bit uh, kind of uh, uh, trouble, kind of last lag of the expansion. So last August, we had uh, the first um, kind of inversion of yield curve. And over the last 50 years, whenever yield curve invert, pretty much in the next uh, half a year to two years, we pretty much surely had a recession. And uh, so the yield curve uh, inverted at a time I already kind of warned the uh, Wharton student that there could be a recession coming and uh, COVID-19 sort of like uh, made it faster. Uh, initially, I didn't think we we're gonna have recession this year, but we are already in recession. So. If you look at America, last year we had about 130 million people employed uh, and unemployment rate was about three some percent, which is the lowest um, in decades. Uh, 
because we had a very long expansion from 2009 all the way to 2000, early 2020. And uh, the problem is uh, the COVID-19, if you look at the uh, unemployment benefit filing, we already had got about 16 million Americans filing for unemployment benefits. And that means the next number we're gonna see in terms of unemployment rate, it will be at least 10% and more likely to be higher. Um, the uh, problem, one of the problem of the uh, last lag of the expansion of the last three years is pretty much every year, if you look at the economic growth, the amount of dollar growth in GDP, it's exactly equivalent to the more national debt we're taking on. So uh, right now, you know, that is not the biggest concern, but we're likely to take uh, quite a few more trillion dollars and more debt on the balance sheet. And that, you know, deficit was uh, already the largest in peacetime ever in, uh, in American history. Wow, so I guess for uh, listeners who may not be familiar with uh, finance or with what designates a recession, so what are the signs or the uh, requirements of a recession to be uh, made? Like how, how can we tell if we're in a recession or not? Is it primarily unemployment or are there other factors as well? There is uh, no definitive answer in terms of what is recession. There is sort of like technical recession a definition and that is a two consecutive quarter of negative GDP growth. And uh, most likely uh, most, you know, most of the forecasts are already uh, are forecasting that in the first quarter of this year, 2020, we're gonna have negative, uh, probably a mild, maybe negative, 3% growth uh, in terms of the GDP. Um, and in the second quarter, we could potentially have something like negative 20% wow. GDP growth. And that's what we're staring at. Um, ho so hopefully, um, and uh, if you look at the official uh, designator of GDP kind of, uh, of recession, it's NBR, National Bureau of Economic, um, you know, uh, research and it's based mm -hmm. in Cambridge, but it's private organization of a bunch of uh, national, you know, most reputable e economists, and they usually designate the recession a couple years after the recession actually starts. Interesting. So, so we don't really know what the recession is officially until sort of like uh, after it happens uh, well into the recession. Sometimes already past recession, uh, but by any measure, by GDP, by unemployment rate, we're gonna see a very, very deep recession uh, and could be, you know, potentially even depression ahead of us. Wow. So that's, that's interesting to me because if you look at the markets, especially this week, uh, even though this has been probably the deadliest week of COVID-19 in the US, uh, the markets are doing very well this week. So that's very interesting to me to see how the markets are responding to this and whether they're hopeful of a quick recovery or uh, even if it's something else. So do you have any thoughts on why this is occurring this week specifically? Um, yeah. Few, oh yeah, please, Chris. Oh yeah, no, it's fine. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's important to note, Ryan, that the stock markets are very forward looking, right? And so when the stock prices were tanking, again, you asked about the, the effect that the COVID-19 was having on the financial markets. We saw a very rapid decline in prices, even though we hadn't really felt 
many impacts at all associated with the the pandemic. And so you just have to remember that it's always kind of a, when we talk about the stock markets, it's about expectations for the future. And so you know, we saw a huge drop. We had, for example, the Dow Jones, which was almost up to 30,000, the Dow Jones index, and ended up dropping all the way to like 18,500. So we had a huge drop, 40% drop in the Dow Jones. But um, you know, it came back up and it came back up because maybe things weren't going to be as bad as they were. And then it went back down again as a roller coaster ride. But the last week has been really interesting, particularly because, you know, we had um, Anthony Fauci basically coming on and saying, hey, you know, this might not be as bad as we think it is. Then, you know, we have this huge Federal Reserve bailout, which, you know, the Federal Reserve comes in and announces a bunch of different programs and loans and, and things that's trying to do to try and help the economy. And then finally, you know, you, you have Bernie Sanders dropping, uh, making the announcement that he's leaving the presidential race, which again, is for the market purposes anyways, who knows if it's the right thing, but for the market purposes, Purposes is a um, is good news because of some of the taxes and policies that um, Bernie had proposed, and so you kind of look at all of these different effects. But we just have to always remember that when we're talking about the stock market, so much of it is about expectations. And I think um, she has been a, done a nice job of describing, you know, the unemployment effects here are going to be severe, the GDP effects are going to be severe. And so I, I believe anyways, that this upswing that we have in the market is potentially a kind of a positive, good vibe feeling. But in terms of fundamentals, um, there, there isn't a lot to back it fundamentally, because as um, she has noted, ultimately, we are in for a long and um, somewhat troubling problematic period here for the next little while in our economy. Yeah. You, uh, you talked about your background in economics, Chris. Could you maybe explain to the listeners why uh, once this initial shock goes away and, and maybe we recover from the actual medical issues and we start to move forward, why it isn't as uh, immediate of an uptick back in employment and back in that GDP and get back to where we were uh, and it won't just be like a switch yeah, being turned back a, on. It's a great point, right? Um, so partially the, the, the issues end up being that when you fire somebody, which is a relatively easy thing, when, you when people are unemployed, it's relatively to, easy to make them unemployed. It's, it's much harder for people to then find gainful employment in the area that they specialize in in a in a very fast and um, I guess easy manner, right? When there's so many people in the market that are looking for jobs, um, and especially it takes a while. There's this kind of bullwhip effect where if companies are shut down, if manufacturing plants are shut down. Well, you're going to need supplies and suppliers to ramp up to be able to get the parts and the pieces that you need to eventually make that final product. And so it's easier to shut things down than it is to get them going back up. And from an economic perspective, I think we're going to see a lot of that. I think um, there's going to be a, a very sharp uh, decline and downturn as we've seen in the economy, but you know, it'll take it a while to kind of turn itself back on and get humming again. Um, and so, uh, you know, from an economics perspective, I, I really do believe that it's going to take a little bit a while for us to kind of turn this thing around. Additionally, uh, one thing that needs to be noted from an accounting standpoint, right, is when we're talking about um, firms' earnings, uh, there's often a, a lag relationship with firms reporting and delays in reporting. And so I think we're going to see uh, pretty soon here, we're going to see companies 
have pretty bad news to report in the financial markets. And I think the financial markets are going to start to realize the true impact of this. And so that lag relationship associated with a firm having their financial statements and not reporting them, you know, 30 until 30 or 60 or 90 days after the, the results have been uh, completed, I think that will also add to some of the problems that we're going to see in the market. I'm interested with the accounting effects as well. Um, so especially with auditing, I know that audits are still going on as normal, or at least they're trying to as best they can. And so uh, I was wondering if there will, if auditors will have to issue more disclaimers of opinions or uh, for people who aren't familiar with auditing and accounting, more, uh, uh, more opinions that don't necessarily reflect positively for investors or others uh, because they won't be able to access certain information or uh, different things like that. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I do. And I, I think, you know, there, there have been a lot of articles that, of course, have come out um, in the accounting space about how accountants and auditors are supposed to deal with this. And so I think from a profession, like you said, um, as much as we can, we're continuing to try and do accounting and do the auditing profession. But obviously, with the restrictions that we have, um, site visits might not be possible, Phys physical inventory observation or counts, access to client records, those things are kind of shut down. Um, additionally, you know, in terms of doing like internal control checks and things like that, that's much, much harder virtually. And so, you know, those elements in terms of the profession itself end up being problematic. Now, um, luckily the SEC has kind of agreed that this is a big issue and the SEC has provided some conditional relief on filing deadlines and letting managers kind of be able to work through this. But as I said, that's actually problematic because the longer of the delays that we give companies to report, the less information, the less data we have to understand the true impact of this uh, pandemic on our economy. But in terms of um, auditors, one of the, I think, Ryan, what you were alluding to is auditors ultimately have to come up with a, a going concern assumption, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, try to decide whether or not this company is going to be able to uh, continue to perform. And for those of you who um, know accounting, you know that if a company is not going to continue, if they're not going to be able to continue on and they're going to, they're going to go bankrupt or, you know, there's going to be some sort of a dissolution of the company, then you do very, very different accounting procedures than you do under the assumption that the company is going to complete. And so, you know, I, I think that that has been a big concern. Um, I certainly believe that COVID, and especially in particular industries, COVID is going to happen, um, is going to affect certain industries, and that auditors are going to have to basically pull the trigger on some going as concern, which is, is impacts and, and impacts on the economy and the market. Yeah. Uh, shifting gears a little bit, Dr. Lee, I know you're well versed in the uh, Great Recession or you know the recession of 2008, 2009. How do you view uh, the outcomes or what will be the outcome of this compared to that? Because many of the listeners and uh, students my age are, you know, that's the immediate thing that you relate to. That's the, the most uh, relevant time that you can kind of relate this situation to. How do you kind of see, I know obviously structurally it's different, but the outcomes in terms of length of recovery and damage to the economy that the COVID pandemic will have compared to that? Um, the outcome is very uncertain at the moment. So if you look at the uh, markets, for example, uh, historically, it has dropped like this a few times in history, but very rare, sort of like 2000, 
you know, 1929, you know, 1987, and, uh, you know, uh, the last stage of 2008, uh, those are the periods we dropped. And usually, usually market will trace back quite a bit, you know, in the short term for bonds. And uh, usually for longer term investor, they wouldn't jump in right away. And uh, so pretty much the market has gone back up, partly because, you know, the growth rate of death and the infection has gone down, the growth rate, not the magnitude. And also, you know, emotion has sort of like a change a little bit because stock market a lot of times is about emotion. It's not about just fundamentals. Fundamentals only like earnings only change so much, so volatile, but market could be very volatile. Um, so what we're having now is a huge amount of uncertainty so far, uh, almost for sure market will have to go down again, at least visit the recent low we have. Uh, if you look at the economy, right, if you look at the economy, a lot depend on the virus. Um, right now, we're not really seeing too much problems yet, but if you think about people who own properties, for example, um, real estate, the renters, the commercial renters and uh, the um, residential you know, renters, they haven't really default on the rents probably yet in a bigger wave. Uh, some people still have some savings, but then if they default, then what will happen to the you know, people who own properties and who have mortgages, right? So a huge chain you know, reaction hasn't happened yet. Um, and uh, so, if the virus, if you look at the historically, virus almost always come in two waves, minimum. And uh, so this is, you know, in America, we don't even cross the first wave yet. In Asia, some of the countries have crossed the first wave, but haven't started the second wave yet. And if the second wave and third wave is more lethal sometimes because the virus could mutate, it could be much more, you know, uh, much worse than what we have now. So I think that's the uncertainty we're facing. At this moment, uh, basically, if we look at the economy, look at the, you know, um, look at the markets, basically, we're in a sort of like huge surprise, negative surprise, and it's kind of in idle storm right now. Um, just so as Chris has mentioned, you know, quite eloquently, it's quite, you know, uh, hard people are still in the process to figure out. In the meantime, obviously you see what Congress has done is they're trying to, especially for, um, I think on the democratic side, they're giving the households some checks and the stuff, trying to make do, make business, you know, small business make do for this moment. But the bigger problem is if this go on forever, if this go on for longer, what will happen? Uh, basically we won't have so much money to sustain this kind of, you know, sort of like staying home anymore. Um, so one of the big examples is Spanish flu, right? We all know that to some extent, uh, if people investigate a little bit uh, lately, there, has, there are three waves. First wave, not so many people died. The second and third wave, it's much more lethal. And the uh, rumor says, I mean, at least some statistics says, actually younger people died a lot more. Uh, in the second, third wave. And partly that was during the war, right? And no country wants to want the population to say, oh, we don't fight the war and we don't produce, you know, equipment or food to, you know, fight the war. So um, that, you know, I hope that doesn't happen. 
uh, we certainly don't have to have that scary moment happen, but uh, something, if the uh, virus mutates to more lethal you know, form, or if this uh, virus you know, stay on for much longer, then we are looking at something closer to between either the Great Recession in, of 2008, 2009, or, and the Great Depression of 1929. Uh, so it all depends on how long this uh, virus disappears. And if you look at the, um, the best hope everybody hinge on is uh, a vaccine. But if you, if you look at the vaccine, basically to have effective and safe enough vaccine, usually takes at least a year, even from now. Um, and if the virus mutates, it could be even worse. And if you look at the historical similar coronavirus, like the MERS, the SARS, even today, we don't have a vaccine yet. We don't have a cure yet. So those are after many years, almost after two decades, we still don't have a cure. Uh, they just happen. We just happen to be lucky, you know, human race to be lucky. We just disappeared uh, by themselves with, you know, strict quarantine. But, you know, this one is much more scary in the sense that you have no symptom for two weeks and you can, you know, infect a lot more people. That's a, that's a problematic aspect of this uh, current situation. I think it's really interesting. We've heard over the last few weeks, um, there's been more and more pressure or suggestion to reopen the economy and get back to normal um, as soon as possible. And I think bringing up the different waves of the virus and how even if it gets better right now, that may not be the end of it. And it probably won't be if we look uh, at previous history. Uh, so it's really interesting to me to have those two sides. You know, one camp wants to reopen the economy to get back to normal and uh, maybe at, as best we can try to prevent a recession or a depression. And then the other side is more focused on uh, containing the virus and making sure all of that goes according to plan. So can we talk a little bit about the economic effects of both sides, um, as well as maybe health effects if there are any? Um, so if you, if the trade-off is the following. If, so for now, the government, especially the federal government still will have uh, uh, quite a bit of firepower because if you look at the debt, uh, federal you know debt currently the yield is almost zero, of even for thirty year debt, uh, it reached to about uh, 60, 70 basis point annualized return for thirty year bonds. If you hold for thirty years, each year you know the return is just 0.7 percent a year, and now it's about you know one half percent, something around there. Mm -hmm. um, so it's still very low, very low, because inflation, at least lately, was about 2%. So inflation is more more than uh, the yield, than the debt in the long term can melt away. So for the for the time being, I think the best strategy is wait and uh, also give people money and give business money to sustain. And uh, we're in a frozen mode for the moment. And hopefully, yeah, you know, yeah. another interesting thing is, um, you know, 
uh, both Professor Lee and I are academics, and so we do a lot of research, right? And you know, this period that we're going through right now, Ryan, um, that this is going to be a, a really interesting period to look in terms of research and how different countries and different economies handled it. I know you've probably been paying attention that, um, for example, Sweden has kind of handled it a little bit differently than, for example, Denmark, a country that's is very close to and economically very close to. And you know, and so I think it's going to be interesting to say, okay, you know. Sweden chose to not basically um, shut a lot of services down. You know, they're keeping their bars open and they're keeping certain events open. They're um, they're trying to you know keep their economy running, but there's some initial evidence that would suggest that there's going to be a huge um, f- uh, fallback or a, a, a problem with doing this. Right, that they're going to face a backlash. I guess is the right word I was looking for. They're going to face a backlash associated with this, and that is the the cost of lives. And, and so it ultimately comes down to it's interesting, right? What's more important, the economy or lives? And um, I think ultimately, while all countries who've chosen to shut down their economies, we're really playing an experiment here. We're, we're doing something that's never been done before, right? Close schools, um, close um, uh, di- different um, venues and and sports and shut it all down and let's just see what happens but by doing this it seems to be anyways it seems to be the most responsible thing to do the most responsible thing to do with people's lives and um, also the most responsible thing to do from a perspective of when you don't know things when there's a lot of unknowns why not err on the side of caution um, but but as you said, um, ultimately, what's going to end up happening is that we're going to have some degree of understanding of the cost of doing this later on. And, and that's what we have not faced so far, is an understanding of the true cost and to some extent the true benefit of, of doing these, um, these measures, which, again, some people view as, as extraordinarily extreme, but when lives are in, at risk, know why not be cautious yeah completely agree with the chris because if you look at the forecast we're having now um you know it could be a hundred thousand americans would die even in the current sort of like the mode uh at the end of the day and that's pretty much more than any of the americans you know died in the war from korean war until today so it's very extreme event and we should and uh, we still have a lot of money from the federal government point of view and that's what we should do and that's also suggested by the experts today and we need to listen to the experts and whether yeah for example chris mentioned to some of the european economies uh, some of the smaller ones like austria for example they're partially open their economy but again even if you're partially open life will be very different from you know what was normal before there is not going to be um the same kind of gathering you know um the same type of the social events going on and everybody probably will focus on the work if they have to you know go to a certain place they, they, they do that but there are going to be a lot change fundamental change uh from this point on and uh, if you think about the virus per se this is not extensive um you know sort of like the uh threat to the human existence not this kind of threat yet but it's possible that kind of threat could come in the future decades because uh, uh, if you had China, for example, at the SARS um, 20, almost 20 years ago, 17 years ago, 
Um, that wasn't uh, as big a problem because at the time Chinese economy wasn't as open, wasn't as wealthy uh, as it is now. And now, you know, China is much more wealthy, yet, uh, you know, some of the um, habits in terms of, uh, you know, eating wild animals or whatever, uh, or raised animals close to uh, habitats of humans, um, that kind of things could make a lot of mutation of jumping of the virus from animals to, to human. And uh, if in the future decades, when other emerging markets like India or Africa, uh, or other you know, uh, countries get uh, re richer and more developed, then uh, if those kind of things are not changed, um, it could happen. Uh, and in a much more lethal form, that's something to potentially have a plan for the long term as well. Right, yeah, there's, I think I've read about a bird flu or um, something with a very, very, very high mortality rate. And this is, uh, I saw an article that talked about how this is almost a trial run for if something like that would happen. Um, right. Because we need to we need to have plans in place or be able to navigate something like this if it were more severe in the future. So I think that's yeah. a very good point as well. Yeah, kind of on that note, we talked in our supply chain episode with Dr. Kent about some positives that might come out of this. Do you see any positive changes, you know, once you have a chance to analyze and research and the academic side has a chance to look at this um, and, you know, come out of it with things that we can use to adapt and be better served in the future when things like this happen? I, I think there are going to be a lot more uh, critical equipment that we have to produce in America and uh, we have to be ready. And the next time it happens, uh, if it starts from other country, then we should uh, start to produce uh, critical equipment, for example, mask, you know, hand sanitizer and test the kits for um, medical use as soon as possible instead of wait until it's already affecting uh, millions of Americans. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I agree. Like, ultimately, we have to understand better um, supply chains. And so I know Garrett is going to really appreciate this comment. But, you know, I saw an article uh, I read, I guess, a week ago talking about the emergence of supply chain to the forefront of discussions. Um, most of us knew that supply chain was part of a business education. And there are some um, schools like the University of Arkansas that are really good at giving a supply chain education, but we haven't really understood supply chains and how important they are until you get into a uh, situation like this where you have to start to understand, okay, where do we get our hand sanitizer from? Where do we get our face shields from? And if, for example, the supply of those things was shut off for whatever reason, be it pandemic or um, some other reason, uh, weather or some catastrophe or whatever it is, how, how quickly could we source those things? And how could we if we can't source those things, deal without them. And um, I think that's just been um, from a positive side, it's hard to find a positive side, a silver lining in this, in this very, very dark economic cloud. But from a positive side, it, it starts to help us understand the importance of, of sourcing and supply chains and you know blockchains and all of those sorts of things in terms of understanding the, the importance of that element of business. Yeah, and uh, what, yeah, for the moment we don't see uh, the uh, the clear 
impact yet. But uh, if you look in the ports, you look at the ocean liner, there are lots of uh, less traffic because a lot of people got sick and uh, ports in America, for example, operation are much uh, slower compared to usual. Uh, so food and everything is not a problem yet, but if, you know, uh, it happens, it could be uh, more scary potentially, just potentially. So some protocol for the future, how to operate in this kind of uh, environment to you know, make these things easier and uh, safer. I think it's uh, certainly something we should think in the future as well. Yeah, and, and one other thing, I'm sure you guys have seen these articles and these pictures coming from satellites and stuff, but one of the most phenomenal things to me is to understand the effect that our economy and manufacturing has on the environment. And so um, you guys, if you've seen any of these pictures coming out of LA, which is usually just riddled with um, smog and you know pollution and things, but because people are having to stay home and they're not driving their car and they're not going to work and making things and, you know, these same things out of manufacturing economies such as Korea and China, you, sh you see these satellite images where, you know, things you've never been able to see, the detail you've never been able to see before now because it's, you know, you don't have the same level of pollution. It's, you start to understand the effect that uh, manufacturing and, and um, you know, just us being busy and moving around has on the environment and, and, and pollution. Yeah, we talked about sustainability. That was the topic for last season um, on this podcast. And so this is really interesting to see both of these topics, you know, health and COVID-19 and sustainability kind of come together and see the effects that uh, they're having on each other. And I saw another thing that the earth is vibrating less as well. Uh, yeah. which is very interesting. So they can read more uh, like minor seismic activity in certain regions to get a better understanding of how the earth is reacting to various things. So I think there are a few silver linings coming out of this. Obviously, it's a really uh, horrible thing and there's really a lot of negative impacts. But I think looking at these silver linings as we go and understanding how we can be better in the future uh, post-pandemic uh, and really improve everything is really an important thing to do as well. Yeah, yeah. And uh, if you look at the life expectancy, for example, of uh, let's say New York and the Massachusetts, uh, they're about 81 years on average. And if you look at the place like um, Arkansas or Mississippi, Alabama, it's about 74, 75 years. So it's actually a big gap uh, because of the, uh, uh, you know, sort of like in the South, there are more obesity, more heart disease, and et cetera. Um, so that's kind of historical. In this environment, if you look at the death rate, at least so far in the big cities where most of the economic activities of America is happening, or anywhere in the world that's happening, you know, in the cities, uh, the death rate is so much higher, uh, at least for the moment. Um, it's still uncertain to say. Um, I, I still um, hope it doesn't happen, but I kind of uh, suspect that uh, in the South, we could have a lot more death rate coming. But if it doesn't, uh, because people are living more sparsely, uh, they're less crowded, you know, uh, that's something, I think, uh, a trade-off uh, when people think about where they want to locate their life and all that. Uh, that's kind of one trade-off they probably will take into the consideration, at least as a small probability. 
I agree. And we may see some shifts away from big cities, even depending on whether this whole work from home thing that a lot of people are being forced to uh, get used to now, whether that will kind of stick around for the future. Uh, I think that'll be interesting to see the effect that that has on big cities and economic hubs like New York and LA and Chicago right now, and see if people move out of the cities into a more, um, you know, not as densely populated area. Right. Yeah, certainly hope that doesn't happen. Certainly hope we have a better protocol in terms of uh, uh, making the situation there in the biggest city better because uh, the agglomeration effect is certainly there and uh, uh, hopefully they can be productive for, you know, for America, for the foreseeable future. Uh, but that's certainly something, you know, potentially, uh, I think uh, some people might uh, consider a little bit more in their uh, equation of uh, decisions. Yeah, and I think that just shows how quickly everything can change. Because I know there were a lot of uh, articles that I read last year, even that said everyone's moving towards bigger cities, and that's where that's what the future is going to look like. And then uh, this pandemic comes along, and then it's like, oh, well, is that really going to happen? And it just shows how quickly everything can change. Um, and even with the financial markets and the economy, uh, we're still in the prime time of volatility and everything. So we really don't know what's going to happen, um, but just doing our best to mitigate the negative effects and make sure that everyone stays healthy, uh, mitigate all of the deaths and everything as much as we can, and just make sure to try to come out of this on the, uh, on the best side. So thank you so much everyone for joining us today. Uh, we are out of time, but uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Glad yeah. to be here. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, uh, Garrett. And thanks, Chris. Yeah, thank you guys. Thank you all.